Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus. If you don't have a Bible, there is a blue English Standard Version in the front of the pew there. You can grab. We'll be looking at Titus 1, 1 through 9. Let's go to God and ask for his help before we hear God's word read. Our glorious, authoritative, infallible, and inerrant God, we come before you asking that you, by your Spirit, would both teach us and rebuke us where needed through this word. Amen. Titus 1, 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Paul, the Presbyterian, was all about order in the church. In every aspect of the church, Paul wanted everything to be done as it should be done. Everything, he tells the gifted Corinthians, must be done decently and in order. Anarchy is not the way of the kingdom of God. Proper and godly rule is the way of Christ our King. From the first days of creation, the Lord commanded Adam to tend the Garden of Eden. There must be order. There must be proper maintenance of the Garden of God. Following Adam, many years later, were Aaron and his priests, who could not veer off the liturgical path or else, as Nadab and Abihu knew, the lesson they learned, everything in its place, and a place for everything, as the saying goes. Rule and order are gifts from God. At the same time, we understand that these gifts can be misused. Some will follow the spirit of Dolores Umbridge, whose ruling refrain was, I will have order. 
Others will kick against the reins of Christ, the horse rider, who leads his church into battle, and they will object, but we live in a spirit of of grace, of, of freedom. Do we really need law? Do we really need order? Can't we just be ruled by the order of love? Some order is, of course, excessively orderly, and we become enslaved at times to the process over the person's At times, then, a a rigid compliance to our own book of church order might bring unintended harm to some. But the way forward is never to throw out order, rule, government, but to have the right people in the right place for the right ordering of houses, of churches, of societies. And as for the church, which is what Paul is talking about here in this letter, As to the church, God appoints godly men to create and to keep order in the church. We read again, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So as Paul begins this letter, his purpose is clear. He is saying, I want God's elect to know the truth. I want the people of God to grow in godliness in this truth, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is our eternal life, who is our hope. What's the context of Paul's letter to Titus? If we read the book of Acts, we read a couple other New Testament letters, we read of a certain Titus, we read of a place called Crete. Titus features prominently in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. He is Paul's partner. He is Paul's fellow worker. Paul calls Titus a true son in the faith. This is language that he reserves for for those who have been converted by his ministry, like Onesimus. Titus was tasked with two really challenging assignments. The first was he had to facilitate the collection of money from the Corinthians for the relief of the Christians in Jerusalem. He wasn't, per se, a fundraiser, but he had to go from place to place getting money to help the afflicted Christians who were experiencing quite the famine. And then he also, of course, had to secure those funds. Another task that he was given was he had to handle the roller coaster relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. He was instrumental in communicating to Paul the Corinthians' concerns. That's why you see in the first letter and the second letter so many topics that Paul has to address, so many concerns the Corinthians have. And Titus was helpful in communicating those concerns to Paul. Here are what the Corinthians are concerned about, here's what's on their mind. But also, he had to communicate to the Corinthians Paul's deep love and compassion to them. Something that a letter only dimly reveals. And as we will see next Sunday in particular, Titus was the right man for the call to Crete. Because relationships between Cretan Christians and relationships between the Cretan Christians and the wicked in Crete were rather tense. It took a hearty man, it took a trustworthy man to go to this island, a name worthy of naming your children after. 
And early Christian tradition has Titus functioning as a bishop of sorts over Crete, this place. It's an island, about 160 miles long, 35 miles wide. It takes about a day or two to, to get to, um, to Greece from it or get to Crete from Greece. So not too far, but you had to intend to get there. You couldn't just all of a sudden land at Crete. You had to be intentional to get there. Or he had to be dropped off, as Paul does Titus. Luke tells us that already at Pentecost, some Cretans were present in Jerusalem. They, they heard the gospel, and they believed. This is early on, so this is the, the 30s. People, in, uh, people from Crete heard and, and believed, and we're not sure exactly what they did with that, but of course they returned to their land. Must have shared the, the marvelous work of God to others. So there were some new Christians in Crete very early on in church history. And in Acts 27, we read also that in Paul's journey to Rome, he stops in Crete. This is early 60s. There's some uncertainty about uh, how many trips Paul takes. Is it just one? And at at that trip, he, he leaves Titus. Or was there another in the intervening years where Paul and Titus uh, come together in Crete, and then that, at that time, Paul leaves Titus. Either way, Titus was intentionally left in Crete. And now Paul writes shortly before his death. He's writing around 64, 65 AD, same time that he's also writing the first letter to Timothy. So there's a lot of commonality between First Timothy and Titus. He's writing to Titus, reminding trustworthy Titus of the reason he was left in Crete. It is to keep up the gospel work, to strengthen the church. There is this common faith, then, that is common to the apostle and to the minister, that is common between the pastor and the church member. This grace and peace that come from Paul's pen that we read about in the very first verses of this letter. This grace and peace that come from God the Father, ultimately, and from Christ Jesus, are graciously bestowed upon all of God's elect. It is on this grace that Paul, an apostle, but more importantly, a slave to God, it is on this grace that Paul depended for all of life. Of course, first as a convert, but second as as an apostle. He needed that grace of God. It is on this grace that Titus depended for all of his ministerial labors. Again, as a, as a convert, but also as someone who would labor in the vineyard of the Lord. It is on this grace that the Cretan churches would depend if there is to be any growth in godliness, if there is to be any growth in, in knowledge, which accords with, with godliness, then these Cretan Christians needed this grace, this peace. It is also then on this grace that Cross Creek Presbyterian Church depends for all of life. This is a blessing from an apostle. Although we live 2,000 years and 5,500 miles apart, I checked on GPS, 5,500 miles apart between Fayetteville and Crete, this apostolic blessing is for us as well. Let us never pass by these apostolic greetings of grace, and peace, because from them we receive certain blessing from God's messenger to lavish his unending grace on us, his people. 
This glorious truth, dear ones, reminds us that in our sin, because of our sin, we do not deserve either grace or peace. And even in our affliction, whatever it might be, we must acknowledge that we are unworthy recipients of God's peace, of his mercy, of his grace, his love for all of life, for our conversion, and for our faithfulness. We depend on grace and peace. That's a way to begin a letter. You are entering into ministry, Titus, being fueled by grace and peace. The same thing is for for all of us. We get up and we are met with the grace and peace of the Lord. These blessings become our blessings because we depend upon the same God who saved Paul, who saved Titus. And as we are greeted by God's apostle here, then let us recall our own natural unworthiness, our odiousness even, our, if I, could, I think this is a pretty coined term, abominability. We are abominable in the sight of God because of our sin. You can never reflect too much on your unworthiness. And as you do, then you reflect on the grace of God. You can never reflect enough on your own former enmity with the Lord. And as you reflect on that, you also have the grace of reflecting on the peace that comes from God's hand. And as we view our own pain, let us, as Calvin says, sweeten our sorrows with God's consoling grace. Grace and peace meet you because of your sin, but grace and peace meet you because of your sorrow, because of your suffering. Whatever it is, and it could be weighty, or it could be, perhaps in the eyes of others, rather small. Whatever it is, grace and peace are before you. They are for you every day. You can sweeten your sorrows knowing that God cares for you, knowing that God graces you, pacifies you. We are graced and peaced Christians, and we shall forever rely on God's boundless blessings. There will never be a time when we are not dependent upon God's grace and peace. And as we move forward into this letter, grace abounds with godly elders. Verse 5, follow along with me. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We notice that these elders are appointed. Titus has been given permission by Paul, as an apostle, to appoint elders. This is no game to be played. This is not the stuff of children's imagination, where they are one day the president. I'm the president of the world, a child might say. I'm the king of the land. I'm the dad. I am the boss. Let the children play. Let them have their fun and even imitate the good that they see in authorities. You can have all the playtime you want, but when it comes to real church order, Facilitated by a knowledge of the truth and for the church's good, we do not take this matter lightly. This is a very serious matter. 
Paul elsewhere will say, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now in Calvin's day, he saw the usurpation in the persona of the Pope. He, he saw the Pope as the one. How dare he arrogate to himself titles reserved alone for Christ? And he was right to object to papal abuses and to even that self-arrogation. And of course, we object with Calvin on the same grounds, though we tend not to have the same issues today as, as he did. Our evangelical moment is fraught with men who have no business, nay, calling, appointing themselves. All they would say is, well, God told me. And I had a couple buddies say, yeah, you, you should be a pastor. If God told you, you got the spirit in you, go for it, brother. How many times is a church established by the thoughts, desires of a single man who has some friends who support his cause. Now, there is something to be said about the internal call. In our own church government, we have what's called the internal call and the external call. In order for any candidate to become a minister, he must first have an internal call. He must sense that he is... um, headed in the direction of being a pastor. You could say he has this desire. I want to be a minister. I want to be an elder. That is not, a, that is not sufficient. The church doesn't say, okay, come on, come on down. A presbytery, any governing body doesn't say, well, if you feel it, it must be right, because all feelings are valid. valid. No. That internal call must be established externally. In fact, often a question is raised of any person who, who feels that internal call, says, say, are there, are there, is there anyone else who sees gifting in you? Perhaps your own elders, perhaps some trustworthy friends, and perhaps even the presbytery. Is there any confirmation outside of yourself to become to pursue this as a, as a valid um, pursuit. But even that is insufficient. A church can't just say, well, we want this guy to be our pastor because he, he feels it, and you know we like what he has to say to us. He must be examined. He must be examined quite a bit in written and verbal form. He must come before many elders who would grill him, who would ask him all kinds of historical questions, all kinds of questions regarding the sacraments, all kinds of questions regarding Bible facts, and many other things. And then the presbytery would say, okay, we approve of this call from the congregation. They want you. We've examined him. He's good to go. Have at him. There must be an internal and an external call If the Son of God, who is the head of the church, did not appoint himself high priest, what hubris must have gotten hold of the heart of the man who thinks that his own word suffices? And as the Son was appointed by the Father, so he appointed twelve to be his apostles. And so these apostles appointed elders, 
wherever the church sets foot. We have Christ as the chief cornerstone, and the, the foundation being laid is, is that of the apostles and the prophets, and the church is built on that foundation. And that foundation has then the elders who are supporting the church, the local church. This is godly order. Paul says to Titus that he is to appoint elders. This word literally is presbyters. So I began this message with Paul the Presbyterian for good biblical grounds. Paul was thoroughly Presbyterian. He loved Presbyterianism. He loved the word presbyter. That's what this word is. And it can mean just somebody who's, who's older than another. Or in this case, it refers to someone who's going to be holding office. Yes, it's, it's true that in ancient Israel, a typical elder was 30 or so years old. It was the beginning um, time, but it's not a requirement. Age is not a requirement. That is to say, it's not the case that once you hit a certain age, then you, by very fact of your age, become an elder. Well, I'm an old person, or I'm older, so now I get to have some governing role in the church. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way, if, even if you, you think you've got quite the business savvy, the wisdom of running affairs, that, that doesn't qualify you. Just because you are older doesn't mean that you become an elder. But there's also no age minimum requ- requirement. Remember, Paul says to Timothy, do not let anyone despise you for your youth. And he says something very similar to Titus, let no one disregard you at the end of chapter 2. So Titus and Timothy must have been rather young, yet Paul is exhorting the church not to disregard Timothy and Titus, mainly because of their age. There's no age minimum requirement. What Paul does require, what God through Paul requires, is that elders cannot be recent converts. You cannot be new in the faith. In Timothy's case, remember, he was young, but he grew up in the faith. He had his mom, he had his grandma who helped him. And then, of course, he had Paul who trained him. Although there is no age minimum, wisdom does come with age to those who are trained by Christ. It would be great if you could just become wiser as you get older, but that is not reality. We know, using the the biblical category of fool, we know that there are many old fools. There are also many young, wise individuals. But we love to look for men who have maximized their age, men who have been devoted to good works, men who have been devoted to sound instruction. And as the Lord providentially brings trials their way, as he brings them perhaps family, a wife, a child or so, and as he brings them into contact with his creation, they learn a thing or two as they submit themselves to the word of God, and they become wise. And that wisdom that's been shaped by the Spirit in sound instruction, that wisdom is what we need. So we look for in men who are older, who might become elders. 
Notice also that Paul has more than one elder in mind. More than one presbyter in mind. Appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. It's not a one-man rule. Paul eschews that idea that it's just one guy calling all the shots. He says, no, you get multiple guys, elders. I didn't ask every elder here, but I am confident that every elder here knows that he needs the other elders. There is so much work to be done in this small church. In fact, sometimes we we hear complaints, and it's good to hear these complaints, but sometimes we hear complaints that we are not doing what we ought to be doing, or we're not doing it as well as we should. Granted, we know this, and we want to hear those concerns. We know that that we fail every single week. You can imagine the failure if it was just one guy running things. Every one of us needs the others. So great a need of wisdom. Some will ask me, do you really need nine elders for a church of this size? I say, no. We need more. Jesus sends out 72 men, two by two, in all the towns. 72, that's quite a bit. It seems like a lot, doesn't it? But Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You got to have more elders. You got to have more workers. How great is the need for, for more elders for us now that the gospel has gone beyond Israel? As we, we heard Jesus saying to the disciples at the end of Mark's gospel, go to the whole creation. Whole creation is a, a big place. Got to have more elders. The hobbit can never have enough meals. The church, never enough elders. And this term, is another term he uses of elders is overseer or bishop. Some of us might think the word bishop is a bad term, but it's biblical. The elders, the presbyters, are called overseer. This is not a, a second office. This is another function of the same office. That elders, presbyters, are to oversee. So who is not an overseer? Everyone who's not an elder. It's pretty simple. If, if you're a church member and not an elder, you're not an overseer. If you're on a committee and you're even chairing that committee and you're not an elder, you are not an overseer. A deacon is not an overseer. A nursery coordinator is not an overseer. A secretary is not an overseer. An elder is an overseer. The elders oversee every ministry of the church. This does not mean that every elder's hands uh, is at every ministerial pie, you know, making the dough, adding the filling, and on and on. But the elders care for and consider how everything we, we do can be done for the glory of God and for the good of the church, that all might enjoy that pie. Every overseer, all the elders are under the oversight of the 
overseer, the bishop, the presbyter, the elder, head of the church, Jesus Christ, our King. Certainly does strike some sobriety into the elders then, as they are not to rule as they, according to their flesh, desire, but they are to rule under the oversight of Christ, who is their King. These elders, overseers, are another word for them, stewards, house of God managers. This is the house of God, and his elders are his stewards. This means that although we rule with authority, and it is real authority, sometimes it's said it's ministerial and declarative, we rule with real authority. We do not own this authority. This is not something of our own making. This, is, this comes from God, who is our king. This is how the Lord has decided to govern the affairs of the church, through godly elders. We are managers. Elders are temple guardians, house guardians. They watch over and guard God's house for the proper proclamation of the word and for the peace and purity of those inside. And Paul says, appoint elders in every town. Paul is not content for the small island of Crete to have only one Christian town. His desire reflects Christ's mission to have his word go forth into all of creation. And since elders are essential to the right order of the church, and since the church's mission is to baptize and disciple the nations, elders everywhere must be appointed. We then lament that elderless congregation. We then lament that elderless town, that elderless city, that elderless nation. We lament that because we know that this is the right order order of the church is to have godly men appointed as elders in every town for the proper government, for the proper discipline, for the proper instruction of God's elect, that they might grow in knowledge and truth. All of this, of course, is a very tall order, a weighty matter that every single elder feels. But at the same time, this is a blessing. We push against order at times, But order itself is a good thing. When people drive their vehicles orderly, rightly obeying just traffic laws, when everyone's doing what he needs to be doing, everyone is safe and everyone arrives at his destination. And when these traffic laws are broken, we are meant to see their importance, meant to, our our wallets are meant to feel the seriousness of ignoring or rejecting these laws. When parents insist that their children's toys be put away at the end of the day, the children might object, will object. But if they obey, they will find their treasured toys the next morning. Everything in its place. How much more is church order then a blessing to everyone involved? It reflects the God who created order out of nothing the Lord who sets right our disorderly lives because of our sin, and the Lord who restores all things for his glory and our good. And if our own denomination can adopt and apply changes to our own book of church order, then we will be able to, at at another level, address homosexual sin at the elder and the deacon level. And if we do that, there will be more clarity for those who might want to become a pastor or an elder or a deacon. 
more clarity. No, you, you can't serve if you are practicing or if you even self-describe as homosexual. You can't serve as a leader in the church. And so the people will then be protected. This is what we pray for regularly for our denomination. And we should for this church as well. Now we see in the, coming, in the next number of verses, verses 6 through 9, both attributes and abilities of elders, of these godly men. Now we have reviewed attributes and abilities of the two offices, elder and deacon, within the last year. We had ordained uh, one elder and four deacons, and there were a couple services. So I'm not going to wax long about these abilities and these attributes. Rather, just have an overview. But Paul's focus here is on the office of elder. He says there are attributes that every man who is to become an elder must be able to demonstrate, must be who he is. Now, before we move on, if you're not an elder or are not going to be an elder, you cannot check out and say, okay, I guess I don't have to have these abilities or attributes, especially the attributes. This is for a whole church. We are to consider our own lives. If elders are to exemplify godly character, for whom are they exemplifying it? For the church, for God's elect, that they might grow. Well, we see that an elder is a one-woman man. That's what the term literally means. It says the husband of one wife. He is a one-woman man. What does this mean? Well, it means that an elder is a man. We're getting, you know, laying that foundation real, real well here. He's a man. You can't be a one-woman man if you are a woman. It's pretty self-explanatory, but sometimes we need to explain the self-explanatory. Amy Bird, Beth Moore, Joyce Meyer, and all other women, whether they are heretical or not, need not, must not be appointed, must not apply. And woe to those men, woe to those elders, woe to those churches who allow this practice that is contrary both to nature and to proper ecclesiastical order. Effeminate men need not apply, for they are more woman than man. If a man is married, he must not be dominated by the lust of the eyes. For as Christ has eyes only for his bride, so must the elder for his wife. It's fairly impossible to treat sisters in Christ with all purity if you're trying to get with them. The elder must not cast aside his beloved bride, blaming God, as his first federal head had done. This is really Church Government 101. And just because of who I'm preaching to, I'm not going to, again, wax long about this particular requirement. Of course, you know what's going on in the world. You know what's going on in, in various churches. And they should pay heed to this uh, requirement but we're thankful, elders are very thankful, that we have a congregation, we have women who, who do not vie for this office. I, I don't know of any 
woman in, this history, in the history of this church who has tried to become an elder. Okay? So this is not a rebuke against any of the women who are here, but just a reminder of, of what God has established. And if you have an issue with me, you really have an issue with Paul, which means you really have an issue with God. This is how God has established his order. Must be a one-woman man. Must be a manager of the house. Because the home life is to reflect the life of the church, godly elders lead their homes such that the children who are living in their homes are faithful to God. Now, there is a lot of controversy about interpreting this phrase, and his, his children are believers and not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so people go number number ways understanding this passage. But his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 4 helps us to understand what he is getting at here, along with the rest of that verse. The godly man must keep his children submissive. He has in mind children who are living in the home of their dad, and they must demonstrate submission to their father's directions, to their father's rule. If he is the head of the home, he manages the home, children are part of the home, they must acknowledge that authority. His children must not be guilty of debauchery or insubordination. So the children who have not left their dad's authority in the home must live in such a way that acknowledges that authority. This does not mean that the pastor's kids will be perfect, that the elder's kids will be perfect. Everyone here knows that no child is perfect, and all of our elders have, have children, and they live in this church. I have kids, and they're here, and we all interact with each other, and sin happens because sinful hearts exist. This also doesn't mean that the children must be converted before the dad would take office, or at least that they mustn't commit apostasy. Now, the children are to be rightly ordered. They are to be under the control of their father with all dignity. The children then, characteristically, must then be obedient. And this right behavior is, as we see, a testimony of the prospective elder's household management and then, of course, of his own fitness to the church. If he can manage his household well, then he can, manage, he can help manage the household of God well. As incorrigible children in the Old Testament Israel deserved death, these dads do not deserve this office if they cannot manage their own households. They are to be men of self-control. The elder is a disciplined man in all of his dealings. The athlete does not need anyone to remind him to get up early and run, though he might benefit from some occasional encouragement. He doesn't need to be reminded to put in the time on the field to watch the footage from the previous game, to, to work as a team. Likewise, no one needs to tell the elder to read his Bible, to pray, to attend church, to get up for work, to love his wife, to care for his children, to love his neighbor, to pray for his persecutor. He is a model of what it's like to have all of life together, rightly ordered, managed even. Again, no elder is perfectly self-controlled in all of his ways, but he is exemplary. He's a model. And if he's not, then he isn't to be an elder. That's what Paul is telling Titus. You look for men who can demonstrate self-control. And in the middle of what the godly man is like, Paul tells us what 
he should avoid. He should not be arrogant. If you know the humility of Christ, then you set aside your kingdom in favor of Christ's kingdom. He is not to be angry. He knows the patience of Christ, and so he sets aside all sinful anger. He is not about the bottle. He knows himself to be a slave of Christ, and so he is not enslaved to to drink or any other substance. He's not enslaved by that. He is not about violence. He knows divine violence. He knows that vengeance is the Lord, says the Lord, and so he pursues justice in God's timing and through God's ways. He is not about greed. He knows the contentment of Christ, and so he looks to give rather than to get. And he's a man of hospitality. Hold on a second. I thought hospitality was just for the elders' wives. It's just for the women, right? Wrong. Verse 8, but hospitable. This is in reference to these men. The men are supposed to lead in the hospitality. That doesn't mean that they're cooking all the meals, though. They might. But they're, they're, they're talking to their wife. If they have one, they say, hey, Let's invite couple X over. Have them in. Let them come into our home. Let us know them better. Let's give of our resources to them. Let's give them a nice meal. A hearty welcome in the church in Fayetteville. But of course, the elders' wives often do play out the various particulars. And we are very thankful for that ministry. The elders' hearts warmly welcome brothers and sisters and and visitors. They offer their resources, their time, their lunches, their dinners, their homes. They draw near to others because God drew them into his divine house. God has received them. And so the elders receive and they reach out to the people of God. Their hearts as Paul expresses in, in, in his letter to the Corinthians, their, their hearts are, are wide open. They're hospitable hearts. They're warm hearts. They receive. They love the people of God. And they are to be lovers of good. They love good because they love God, who is the fountain of all goodness. And the final attribute here is they are a firm believer. They are models of right ordering of their faith in Christ and in his word. They know whom they believe. They know the one who has bought them. And their faith is firm. It's firmly placed on the solid rock of Christ. And why must they be firm believers? Because so many people are not. So many doubting spirits, so many downcast spirits, so many spirits that are questioning, that are not assured. Oh, a ministry that the elders have then to these doubting, struggling saints. And they can only do that if they themselves are firm believers. They are, in a word, above reproach. This is the catch-all term that aptly summarizes the men the church needs. It's not a new attribute, it is a summary attribute. They are to be, on the whole, above reproach. And many of you, perhaps, last couple of weeks, you've uh, caught the news on Matt Chandler. Perhaps you remember 
perhaps you've seen what's going on with Matt Chandler. He had to step down, at least temporarily, from the ministry. Uh, he's, a, he's one of the celebrity pastors. That's why I mentioned his name. You probably heard about him. And what happened, and, and, and I'm not giving, giving you anything that he himself did not give, that the elders themselves did not give in the announcement on one Sunday morning a couple Sundays ago. But uh, he was involved in some communication with this woman who was not his wife, and his, his own wife knew about the communication, and the woman's husband knew about the communication, but there was a friend of the woman who took issue with the uh, familiarity and the frequency of the communication, and so reported that to Matt Chandler, who then submitted it to his wife and the elders, and the elders believed that based on, again, the familiarity and the frequency of the communication, and based on some of the coarseness with which he spoke or wrote, that he was not um, above reproach as far as that is concerned. So he had to step down temporarily with the goal of being restored into another 20 or 30 more years of pastoral ministry. Again, we don't need to adjudicate this matter because we don't know all the particulars. It's not for us to to pronounce a judgment on that. It's not for us to pronounce judgment on whether or not um, he should have stepped down in the first place. But this, this illustrates the importance that we are to have when it comes to godly men. That no man is above, uh, above Christ. And all men are submitted, ought to be submitted to Christ, who is, of course, above reproach in all of his ways. And as issues come up, we can thank the Lord that he has given us established ways to deal with conflict, to deal with accusations, to deal with charges and complaints, and on and on. These men are to demonstrate these various attributes. Character is essential, foundational even, but capabilities do matter as well. All of these attributes play themselves out in the performance of godly duty. You, you can't be a one-woman man only in your mind and not be truly faithful in your practice. You cannot manage the household perfectly in your mind and only in your mind. You don't say that you are no longer, uh, that you no longer identify as an alcoholic, but then still get drunk regularly. So even these attributes show themselves in real-world uh, communication, interaction. But there are three abilities that every elder must be able to demonstrate. They must be able to teach All elders must be able to instruct the elect of God in sound doctrine. That is to say, in Scripture. The standard is not for them to teach math or art or history, though they might be teachers on the side or full-time teachers in, in those capacities. Their primary content of instruction is, for, for the life of the church, it is Scripture. They must know the Word of God inside and out. How can they teach the people of God? They don't know the Word of God themselves. They are then regularly pouring themselves over, over this Word and, and prayerfully considering it. And in any situation, whatever, whatever happens, they, they know, they have that timely Word, that, that seasonal Word for that suffering saint, for that, sin, for that, sinful, uh, for that sinful saint, for, for that doubting Christian. If the elect will grow in the knowledge of the truth, this growth will come significantly from the elders. That's not to say that 
You should not, as your own, being a church member, that you shouldn't study the Word of God. You should. You must. You can't say, well, I don't know the Word of God because the elders didn't teach me. But if you are in the life of the church, then you are regularly submitting to the instruction of the church. And wouldn't you know it? The Lord uses that instruction for your growth. And if the conduct of God's elect will accord with godliness, sound instruction is needed. That's the fun part, able to teach. If you love the Word of God and you have the gifting for teaching, then you, that's what you get up doing. Like, yeah, I, I just got to teach. Give me some students. Give me some church members. Give me a counselee. Give, give, me, give me anyone, and I'm going to teach this Bible. But Paul also says there is this ability to rebuke. All elders must be able and willing to offer rebuke to God's elect as needed. Speaking against the world is, is easy enough. But rebuking the elect, very hard. Very hard in the heart. Don't want to do it. Not fun. Unpleasant. If a godly man, however, cannot stomach the idea of lovingly rebuking the sheep, he is not fit. If he says, well, I can teach, but I, I can't see myself rebuking, offering correction, say, okay, thank you for your honesty, but you're not fit. If you can't rebuke, then you cannot become an elder. Why? Because every one of us is a sinner. And in order for us to grow According to the truth, which accords with godliness, we must at times be rebuked. We must be taught. We must be corrected. We must be rebuked. We must be trained in righteousness. And that takes a deft use of the word of God. Calvin says that elders must have a soft voice and a scary voice. If you are a student, you perhaps have had a teacher who has both a soft voice and a scary voice. If you are a child, you have a parent who has both a soft voice and a scary voice. You know when all is well, and you know when all is not well. You know, what, you know what, how mom gets or how dad gets. You know how that teacher gets. When they see something in you or that you did that doesn't comport to the word of God, doesn't comport to the sound instruction, Calvin says he, must, he will speak softly and pleasantly when he calls his flock together. He must also have a voice which frightens wolves and thieves. So he must have a, a frightening voice for those outside of the church. Yes, for those wolves, those thieves, a voice that drives out those false teachers. But also our sin. God uses us to drive out the sin of others. As we offer a godly rebuke, done with love, yes. But also grace to draw them in. He must be able to bring order. That's what the goal is in verse 5, to put what remained into order. These three abilities really are one. They are one wise use of Scripture, bringing order to the church. As dads teach and rebuke their children, they shall see order in the home. And as elders bring the word of God to bear on all of life and godliness, the church will see that order will be set right. These are many blessings of elders. Dear ones, look for these blessings. We have 
This is very much applicable to those who are on the pastor search committee. You nine, plus the alternates, you must be looking for these blessings. You must be looking for these qualifications set forth in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 and Acts 20 and many other passages. You must be looking for this kind of individual. Don't you dare give to the session. Don't you dare give to the congregation someone who does not meet these requirements. And we're thankful that you have a good head on your shoulders, that you will not waste our time with someone who is unfit for this office. But there might even be men here, or there might soon be men here who demonstrate these abilities, these attributes. And you might be approached by someone and say, have you ever thought about being an elder? Humbly then consider the fitness Church, encourage the elders whom the Lord has appointed. You have nine of them for now. Encourage them. We need your prayers. We need, we need you to receive instruction and at times rebuke. We need to be with you, and we need you to be with us. Encourage us. Let us work for your joy. So look for these blessings and receive them. As you encourage the use of their gifts and you pray for them, you will need to then receive the instruction that they have for you. Yes, test it. No one here is above the word of God. So test. But as it comports with the word, receive the teaching and receive the correction, receive the rebuke. And as you receive this instruction, as you see the rebuke, this church will be more and more blessed. We've got a good thing going here. Christ has been gracious to us. He works powerfully in and through you all. That is, that is evident. But we have still much room to grow because we have not perfectly been conformed to the image of Christ So just imagine a church that receives the elders and their teaching. The church will will also be a model of behavior. It will also be hospitable. The church would also be lovers of good and steadfastness in the faith to be about the truth and self-control and fidelity in relationships, to have the proper management of the households, and, and on and on. These many blessings come to all those who submit themselves to the sound instruction of the word of God. May we all, elders and members alike, then bless the Lord who works for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you have graciously decided to work through your word and to work through fallible men men who need you just as much as everyone else does. We pray that you would continue to work blessings, faithfulness, godliness, humility, self-control, truth. Work all of these and more in all of our lives, we pray, for the glory of Christ, for the good of the church. Amen.